Hello, I am so excited to share this episode of the podcast with Professor Mark Jacobson. Mark is a legend in the world of clean energy and climate change. His early work became the scientific basis for California to regulate its own greenhouse gas emissions and exemption from federal oversight and jurisdiction. He also was, uh, he published a 100% wind wave solar plan for each state, for each country, and that plan became the backbone for the Green New Deal. He has had a lot of impact. He's also very controversial. We dig into that controversy, we address it head on. Mark has been a mentor to me. I studied under him at Stanford, and it was a great honor to sit back down with Mark and have this conversation. I hope you enjoy. Well, thanks for making time. I really appreciate it. Yeah, sure. Um, I know you're pretty busy here. <laughs> well, it's, yeah, it's my whole life. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm getting used to it. Yeah. 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 You've been a professor here how long now? This is my 30th year. 30th year. Yeah. As wow. A professor at Stanford. How old were you when you first became a professor here? Well, <laughs> 58 now, so 20, 28. 28. Yeah. That's wild to become a professor at Stanford at 28. Yeah, it's, um, it, well, it was quite, um, I mean, it was a fortunate, very lucky for me, I felt. I mean, it was, of course, a great place to come, but I didn't have no, expe no expectation of getting a job. It was after my PhD. So I did, I did a PhD at UCLA in atmospheric sciences. I mean, I've always been interested in trying to understand and solve large-scale air pollution and climate problems. And uh, I was studying air pollution at Los Angeles. And at, toward the end of my PhD, I was thinking, what should, what should I do? I mean, I was interested ultimately in teaching and doing research, um, but I was thinking probably do a postdoc first. So maybe at NASA Ames, where they have a good research center. Um, but there was, I just found out by chance there was a job opening in civil and environmental engineering at Stanford. At the time, it was just civil engineering. And, and it was actually in a, in a topic, on a topic that I didn't really, it wasn't my main area of research. It was kind of a part area of research. It was, it's called atmospheric transport flows because it was the fluid mechanics and hydrology group who studies uh, water systems and water flows in particular, uh, were interested in kind of delving into the atmosphere and looking at atmospheric flows. But I did work a little bit on atmospheric flows at the time, but it was more on atmospheric chemistry and air pollution, but it involved meteorology as well. And I was doing computer modeling of air pollution, which involves uh, computer modeling of flows in the atmosphere, although... You had built a first-of-its-kind model by that point, or you were in the process of building? Yeah, so for my PhD dissertation, uh, I developed an air pollution model, which is actually only the third air pollution model in the world at the time. Uh, but what I did that was unique was to couple a chemical, atmospheric chemical model with an atmospheric dynamical model with feedback between the two through radiation transfer. And that had never been done before, either on the global scale or urban scale. So it was actually the very first. You connected couple. the physics and the chemistry. Yeah, I mean, there are a lot of weather prediction models around before then. And there are a lot of, well, not a lot, but there are a few atmospheric chemistry models that would use interpolated winds or uh, winds that were predicted 
previously from a meteorological model and put into a file and then used as inputs to drive the move the chemicals around. But never before had there been a meteorological model coupled with a chemical model with aerosols and gases and and radiation transfer and actually interacting where the not only did the winds drive move around the chemicals but the chemicals fed back to the winds hmm. by changing the temperatures and through other feedback processes and when you created this you were focused on air pollution and human health and cities and um you know extending people's livelihoods and, and longevity of life but you weren't necessarily focused on climate change at that point uh, no well Actually, by the time I started, I was just getting into it because my PhD, which was from 1989 to 1994, I, I studied air pollution in Los Angeles Basin. So I developed a computer model that simulated the gases and particles in particular and then coupled that with a meteorological model and then coupled them interactively. But at the end of my PhD, I also wrote a grant proposal to the Environmental Protection Agency who was interested in studying, um, wanted to study global climate. And so in that project, in that proposal, I proposed to extend this urban air pollution model to the globe to develop a global model that I could then use to study climate. And it was actually miraculously funded uh, just as I was leaving um, UCLA. And indeed, I got started, I mean, it was a joint with some, I, I wrote in some professors at UCLA, and so it was a collaboration. And I ended up then coupling with the UCLA general circulation model as the uh, as the feeder, as the model that I, I then transitioned the model, the urban scale model to a global scale by basically taking the same chemistry and aerosol and radiation codes, and then coupling them instead with a instead of with a local scale meteorological model with this global general circulation model, the UCLA general circulation model. And so during that project, I then developed the first model in the world that was coupled with feedback between gases, aerosols, radiation, and meteorology. Um, feedback in both directions where the meteorology fit, you know, affected the chemicals and then the chemicals fed back to, to the meteorology. So that's when I started studying global climate. As well, I mean, to me, I'll, <laughs> to me, that's that's like prodigy level. Where I mean, you're you're pretty young at that point. You're developing first of their kind global weather system models, physics and chemistry of air, um, and air pollution and climate. All is is integrating with itself in this model. You become a professor at Stanford at 28. You've been here 30 years. I mean, that's that's just incredible. I, you know, it, it, it's Goodwill Hunting esque almost. I mean, well, thanks, but um, I mean, I really, my whole career, I mean, it has been designed to try to solve these problems like air pollution and climate change, and through, in the end, clean renewable energy solutions. And so, for me, it's more. I'm just happy that I'm in a I'm in a position where I can actually address these problems because they are so important. I mean, I got into this air pollution because I just, when I was really young, like 13 years old, I was traveling to Los Angeles and San Diego and playing tennis. And it was the air pollution, this was in the 1970s, was so bad, I just, you know, you couldn't see like three tennis courts down. And 
you're, you know, you're breathing when you're running, you, you know, you choke and your eyes are scratchy and some, some people are throwing up on the courts. I just thought, why should people live like this? This is ridiculous. And so I thought, this is a really, this is a problem I want to solve. And this, you know, I'm just so lucky, you know, sometimes you get lucky in life in one or two things. And I was just so lucky to be able to, to get a job where I could at Stanford as a professor where I could actually do exactly what I set out to do is to try to understand and solve these problems because, and I had the freedom to be able to do that, to, you know, come up with new ideas, to code, to teach classes that I really wanted to teach and, to, and also to help train students because in you know, most jobs, you know, even research jobs, you know, other than maybe at a university, you're really constrained about what you can do. And, you know, you can certainly study certain topics, but not necessarily have that ability to try to not only do the research, but then get the information out to large numbers of people and to um, try to educate lar on a large scale, large numbers of people about the problems and the solutions. And so I was just lucky to get that position. I think that was one of the, probably the luckiest things in my life. Yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty incredible. I'm sure the number of students that you've had over the years is is a large number that are out in the world doing doing positive things, making a difference. Um, well, yeah, it took it took like about ten years because that, actually, when I did get the job as a professor, I mean, I did do a lot of research, but um, but I was in a in the program called Environmental Fluid Mechanics and Hydrology. So anybody who wants to study at atmospheric science or air pollution or climate looks at the title of that program and says. They have no idea what it means, <laughs> and, and it doesn't doesn't necessarily mean anything related to climate or air pollution. And so we didn't really get I didn't really get many many students. I had a few students who had, for PhD, but then like in ten years later in two thousand four, there was you know there were a couple of people in our department that were interested in the atmosphere. There were a couple of people interested in energy, and so what we decided to do is combine forces and create a new program inside the department called Atmosphere Energy to actually make it more visible to outside students. And, and, that, um, and so and with the goal of people who people coming into the program, they would be try to understand and solve these large-scale problems. And this was one of the first interdisciplinary um, graduate-level <clears throat> um, academic programs in the country for, for climate and renewable energy. Yeah, as uh, far systems. as I know, it was the only at the time in still at first that just focuses on atmosphere and energy. So when I say atmosphere, like weather, climate, air pollution, and then energies, we focus on clean renewable energy as opposed to all energy. It's clean renewable energy. But yeah, definitely at the time, there were no other programs that were combining both. And we then focused first on the master's program because that is where we had a lot of students coming in who were interested in master's. It was like a one-year program nominally. And, uh, or you know, one and a half years sometimes. And uh, we, there were a lot of students interested in doing that. Um, and we did a test run and it worked out. We, a lot of students who were passionate about these topics came in and this program kind of blossomed. And it was, very, I mean, I was excited about it. And that's when we started getting lots of master's students. So, and so since then, we've probably had, I think, around over 500 graduates, master's student graduates of the program, wow. and including yours truly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Back in the day. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and uh, also, then we, I think 2007, we extended that to an undergraduate program. And 
then, and we've also had PhD students go through their program. So it's still, the program still exists and I'm still very happy about it. Yeah, it's pretty cool. I remember it really caught my eye when I was looking for um, applying to graduate school. It was like, wow, there, here's this program. It mm. is very focused on climate and clean energy. And it's just everything that I could have hoped for in a, in a master's program. Um, mm. I have a question for you about the models. I heard you say in, in a debate um, on, on YouTube somewhere that um, the model that, that you've developed, the global weather system physics and chemistry model is um, significantly more intricate or um, complex than the IPCC models. Yes. Um, mm. Can you explain that and what, why is that and why don't they use your model or who's, how does the modeling even, who decides what models to use and how does that all work? Right. So we'll just first, yeah, it is more complex. And the reason is, is because it started as an urban air pollution model. Um, well, with respect to models, the, the problem with atmospheric models in general is that they take uh, an enormous amount of computer time. No matter how many computer, no matter how many supercomputers you have, or even supercomputers linked together, you always need more, more computer time. So air, but air pollution model is very intricate. It's very high resolution in space, but also uh, usually simulations are very short simulations, like three or four or five days, maybe it could be a week simulation. And so you can put in a lot of physics and chemistry, dynamics, radiation, ocean surface processes, you know, land surface processes. Uh, and th so they're, it's very, they're very complex. So whereas climate models historically have just we're basically just meteorological models. And a meteorological model, just to put in perspective, of all the computer time in a coupled meteorological air pollution model, the, air, the meteorological part generally takes maybe 1% of the computer time. Wow. So the chemistry and aerosol microphysics and cloud microphysics in a coupled model are taking 99% plus time. Because, wow. Because you're treating like gas chemistry, which is very nonlinear, and you're trying to solve it exactly in millions, well, hundreds of thousands to millions of grid points. And then you have particles, what are called aerosol particles, which are larger than gases, but they have different sizes. So you not only have to treat, because gases are basically one size, and you can treat them as one, um, one, you know, one size, but they're like hundreds to thousands of gases that you have to treat their interactions. But particles, they have different sizes. So you have to treat all their sizes. Then each size has a different composition. Then you have a bunch of different chemicals in each size. And then each size is interacting with each other size. And so you have to treat these, those interactions if you want to do it right. Then you have gases interacting with the particles of each size and of each composition. And then you have to move them all around. And then you have to do radiation transfer through all of them. So it's very complicated. And, and the uh, chemistry really matters. Like as an example, sulfur... Um, sulfur dioxide emissions can greatly impact um, the reflection of sunlight. Um, various gases do do different things in terms of the absorption or reflection of sunlight. And um, it's not just uh, radiative trapping of, of greenhouse gases. There, there's a much more complicated picture around how the earth warms based on events as, as it moves forward in time. Right. Well, there's interaction, especially when you're looking at air pollution, you have thousands of chemicals that are interacting and people breathe them in. And so it's not just, you know, greenhouse gases are pretty inert and they don't really react chemically. That's why they're greenhouse gases. They're long lasting gases that don't decay chemically over time very easily. Um, so you don't have to really deal with the chemistry at all. 
But when you're talking about ozone in, in smog, uh, when you're talking about oxides of nitrogen, oxides of sulfur, uh, oxides of hydrogen, they're all interacting. Hydrocarbons, they're reacting and on a very on different time scales. Some are like time scales of like 10 to the minus ninth seconds. And others are in time scales of one second. Others are in time scales of you know 100 seconds. So you have to deal with these not only nonlinear equations, but what's called a stiff set of equations. And you need an, what's called an ordinary differential equation solver that solves stiff equations. And those take an, an enormous amount of computer time. And that's just the gas chemistry. Then you have all these other processes. But to answer your question, so the climate models have typically ignored all the chemistry, physics of aerosols, um, most don't even have aerosols except maybe like a, you know, like a bulk aerosol or something. And then clouds have been so simplified in climate models. And the reason is because for, to get, to actually finish the simulation and climate simulations have generally been hundreds of years to sometimes thousands of years. And so you need something that runs really fast. And so they take everything out. That's all the physics all the major physics out, and they have a lot of parameter, parameterization. To be able to process that much time of, yeah. of the calculations. Yeah, to be able to actually simulate for over a lot of grid cells worldwide for um, centuries to you know, thousands of years. Where So I started with, I took an urban model that I built and expanded it to the global scale, and I maintained all of the details and as a result, it ran very slowly. So when I did climate simulations, in fact, to this day, I generally, I've rarely done a climate simulation longer than 50 years. I mean, most of my simulations are short-term climate simulations. Mm. And because, yeah, I just don't have the computer power. I mean, I could simplify it, but what I've learned is that once you start simplifying by taking things out, you get different answers. That's what I was going to wonder, like how do people with all of these different approaches or just these two different approaches, maybe there's more, um, make sense of, of truth amidst, amidst the, because people aren't necessarily within these models. They don't necessarily understand um, the details of them or their mechanics right. or their differences. And, and the models generally all say, you know, directionally the same thing, but there are important differences and the differences can create um, a lack of trust even there's, there's sort of political, it can be politicized. It can be, um, you know, you can't trust the models because who knows what's in them. Yeah. Um, well that's, that's true. And now there is an element of that, but the good news is, is that, so in terms of greenhouse gases, like the great effects of greenhouse gases, I mean, I test like my model against other, other models in terms of greenhouse gas effects. And you do get similar answers with, in terms of the greenhouse gases compared with other models, um, because it's such a dominant influence and such a dominant um, uh, feature. I mean, what their, their impacts are so dominant of greenhouse gases. But what I've focused on are the effects of particles on climate, and that's where you see big differences. Mm. And that's so the different the particles can be either what we call cooling particles or warming particles. So there are only a couple of real warming particle components. What's called black carbon and uh, brown carbon. Yeah, soot. Yeah, soot, which is black carbon is the main component of soot, and brown carbon is also part of soot, but also can be from some other sources. And these, you know, black carbon is black because it absorbs sunlight directly. It then heats the air directly because it takes that sunlight, converts it to heat, and then releases the heat to the air around it. Unlike a greenhouse gas, which is transparent to sunlight, but absorbs infrared radiation emitted by the surface of the earth. Black carbon also absorbs infrared radiation, but that's 
its, its absorption of solar radiation is way more powerful. Just to give an example, like one gram of soot, black carbon in the atmosphere, heats up the air about a million times more than one gram of carbon dioxide. The air around it, wow. But the difference is black carbon only in soot only lasts in the atmosphere a few days to a few weeks. Wow. Whereas carbon dioxide lasts, you know, uh, has a lifetime of about 80 years on the order. So as a result, you don't have as much, you because the, but you always have emissions of black carbon. So you also have a amount, certain amount in the atmosphere. And what I discovered with this model, doing this modeling, is that black carbon may be the second leading cause of global warming after carbon yeah. dioxide. And it lands on glaciers in high mountains, especially in Asia, and it's yeah. melting glaciers especially fast. Yeah, so some of the impacts, aside from absorbing uh, sunlight directly, is that it, it deposits onto uh, sea ice, snow, any light-colored surfaces, well, if it's sea ice or snow, it can then melt that sea ice or snow really rapidly because what happens is it settles on the top of the snow, for example, and then sunlight hits the black carbon, the black carbon heats up, and then radiates infrared heat around it to melt the snow really fast. So you can actually put two patches of snow, put some powdered black carbon on one, and just leave the other bare, and you'll see within a day or two, what the black carbon one melts completely, whereas the other one's on untouched right but the other impacts are that inside of clouds black carbon dissipates clouds as well so you go over like southeast asia where you have this huge amount of soot emissions and organic and brown what we call brown carbon as well and some over these big cities you see no more clouds so you see a mm. lot of haze because mm. you basically dissipated the clouds and then the water vapor then kind huh. of condenses onto particles to become haze yeah so these feedback cycles um, you tr you try to um, render in your model and, and move forward in time what's going to happen as different um, inputs change. Um, how do we? Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna jump into actually the the waiver system. I'm gonna just because because we, we don't have that much time, so I I want to um, you your modeling was integral to. Um, proving or expert testimony around carbon domes, um, carbon heat domes around cities, which um, similar to everything we've been discussing so far, the physics and the chemistry of all of that led to the waiver of California um, from the EPA, from the sort of regulation of the US government. And in a sense, it kind of put it outside of the mandate of the, um, of the existing, of the Supreme Court even. Like they, we can have, California can have higher standards of car emissions and regulate its own greenhouse gases as a result of this waiver. Yeah, so the history behind this is that, well, historically, California has been able to control or to set its own standards for air pollutants that affect people's health. And that is because California, starting in about 1946, well, this Los Angeles Air Pollution Control District was the very first air pollution control district in the United States and was granted by the state of California to be able to control its own air pollution. And ultimately, ever since then, California has been setting standards, not only in Los Angeles, but then throughout California, has been setting standards for not only um, like refineries and you know, dumpster emissions uh, and gas station emissions, but tailpipe emissions for vehicles. And the, the Environmental Protection Agency, which was started in 1970, uh, it has 
looked to California to set to California's regulations to set federal regulations. So California has always been a precursor to federal regulations for air pollution, uh, not only ambient standards, outdoor concentrations of pollutants that people are yeah. allowed to have, but also like tailpipe emissions. It's at the vanguard. It sets it sets the trail. Yeah, it sets the trail. So there's a lot of testing is done of standards in California, and then they may or may not, may not be adopted at the federal level. So, Cal, and but any uh, since the EPA came around, though the, the California has always uh, been able to set tougher standards than at the federal level. But generally, it's had to request the EPA for a waiver to set um, tougher standards. And every time, it's been granted this waiver. So, but in two thousand seven or eight, California requested the EPA to be able to control its own tailpipe emissions of carbon dioxide. Which isn't regulated under the Clean Air Act because it doesn't directly affect um, human health. Well, that, that was the that was an argument that, that was, was made. The, that, that was the right. Because the Clean Air Act amendments of 19, amendment of 1970, it allows uh, the EPA to control pollutants that affect people's health and well and welfare. And the argument by some people, a lot of people at the time was, well, carbon dioxide doesn't affect people's health. It affects climate, but that doesn't necessarily directly affect people's health. And and so when California made this request, uh, it would, California was denied the request uh, by the EPA administrator. And the EPA administrator argued that, well, that you know, CO carbon dioxide doesn't affect people's health and it would have to show, California would have to show that uh, controlling carbon dioxide would have a better or a greater impact in California than any other state actually to <coughs> excuse me to get a get a waiver and it said it didn't you know local emissions of carbon dioxide don't affect people's health mm-hmm. so they were denied the waiver um, on on the premise that there's no there's no differentiation between states um, in terms of greenhouse gases uh, affecting human health. And, and then they went to you essentially to, to, with your model to demonstrate that's not the case. Well, so the, they were saying that the EPA administrator, and this was under George Bush, was stating that California has to show a special need for the state of California. There has to be like some difference in emissions in California versus another state for California to have a to get a waiver, and they were saying, well, CO two affects if it has a climate effect, it affects climate equally everywhere. So there's no special need in California for a waiver. And also, he was saying that uh, CO two emissions don't affect people's health directly, regardless. So there's no need under that grounds uh, to uh, grant a waiver either. And that's the cornerstone of regulating of, of environmental policy in the U.S. is the Clean Air Act. Yeah, I mean, and that's based on the that's the just, law of the land. Well, he, yeah. So the administrator at the time was interpreting the Clean Air Act to say that there's no basis for controlling CO2, carbon dioxide, because it doesn't affect California. I mean, giving California preferential treatment of CO2 because it does, doesn't affect California more than any other state, and it doesn't have a local effect on people's health. And I coincidentally was working on that topic, and I was, with the model I'd been developing, uh, was looking at two things. What was the effect of carbon dioxide on people's health through changes of temperature? Mm-hmm. And 
based on that study, I found that well, carbon dioxide does affect people's health because when it raises the temperature, temperature increases ozone in polluted air, higher temperature increases ozone in polluted air, and but it does not increase ozone in non-polluted air. So there's a differential effect and there's mm -hmm. a reason for that. Um, but when you have a, an already polluted airshed, higher temperatures, even like one degree higher, will increase the ozone in that airshed and cause more mortalities and morbidities. Whereas an increase of temperature in a rural area won't increase the low level of ozone to a higher level. And anyway, there's a complicated chemical reason for both of these findings. But it was not only the temperatures, it was also because when you have higher temperatures, you have more water vapor because you evaporate more water from the ground. And the higher water vapor independently increased ozone more in polluted air, but not in clean air. So two effects of carbon dioxide were the higher temperatures and the higher water vapor independently increased ozone, which was a harmful air pollutant that killed people, kills people today. And so that was one finding. And then I did a, a separate paper where I looked at, well, in urban areas, you have elevated carbon dioxide levels because you have more traffic, more sources of CO2, and measurements, like there are measurements in many cities in the US where they actually measure the carbon dioxide levels, and they're like 100 to 200 parts per million higher than the background. The background CO2 is like, today it's like 420 to 425 parts per million. But we're seeing in some cities, you know, 550, 600, 650, 700 parts per million of CO2. So I modeled Really? That. In some city? I didn't realize that. Wow. Well, all the, in fact, all the cities that they have measurements, I'm sure all the cities are elevated. But yeah, you get 700 a lot of times. In, in some cities, wow. Yeah. And now CO2, though, does not have direct, it's not going to cause death until maybe 15 to 30,000 parts per million. So it's not going to kill you directly. But what I, I modeled that impact of those dome, what I called CO2 domes over cities, how they impact local, local temperatures and how that fed back to ozone and other chemicals. And what I found was those elevated CO2 levels increased temperatures locally and those higher temperatures and increased water vapor and those higher temperatures and water vapor then caused more deaths locally. So, and then the third thing is, so California had at the time and still has about, there was like eight of the 10 most polluted cities in the United States. So these findings were that because California already had the most polluted air in the US, higher temperatures in California due to higher global CO2 caused more deaths. Preferentially more deaths. Deaths in California than other states. And therefore it should have the right, the legal right to regulate um, greenhouse gases. Yeah, regulate CO2. And so, and also, in addition to that, the local domes were causing increased deaths locally. Due to, so the CO2 was causing directly or well, indirectly, but locally causing more deaths just due to the higher, just due to the local emissions of CO2. And so in 2009, when the new administration came in, they had new hearings because California then requested the waiver again. They invited me as, or, well, they invited California to submit expert testimony in California that invited me because they'd seen my papers to testify. Mm -hmm. And I, in fact, I was the only only witness for California uh, who was a science, science witness to testify at the EPA hearings. And so I testified about this. And then based on, I was told that based on these findings, they then granted California the waiver, which was the first, uh, it was really the first law allowing CO2, California's law was the first law 
allowed tailpipe CO2 to be uh, regulated in the world. This cracked open the door to regulating greenhouse gas emissions in America and and beyond because the rest of the, it's like America looks to California, the rest of the world looks to America, and there is a sort of precedent setting nature to this whole story, which is why I'm focused on it right now, because I think it's fascinating, because I think a lot of people don't realize or know any of this and think that they're has been no regulation of greenhouse gases or climate, but all of this is how the legal system works and is sort of a backdoor into it and um, and has been politicized. Like it it existed and then Trump got rid of the waiver, I believe. Well, he tried to, He I don't think he was successful. Oh, he didn't succeed, okay. Yeah, I think he, well, he was, he was, he was pushing for it, but I think it was in the courts and then it, they, they stymied. Okay, I thought, for some reason, I thought he got rid of it, then Biden put it back in. But either way, it's... And then 40% of other U.S. states have, have um, followed California's um, tailpipe standards via the same waiver system. They've opted into the waiver system. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I'm not sure what all, what all the other states have done. But that's, yeah, generally, like, yeah, about 40% of states follow California's tailpipe emission standards yeah. in general. And so, like, if California says we are limiting um, you know, emissions of any chemical to a certain amount, other states, 40% of the other states follow immediately. Yeah, it's incredible. I mean, and, and this from your, from your early research as a, as a PhD student at UCLA, the modeling work there, and this leading to, I mean, talk, talk about impact. It's like, <laughs> well, well the, actually, I'm, there's another one that actually nobody knows about, which was Back in it was around 2004 because I'd done work on black the black carbon I mentioned finding that black carbon uh, may be the second leading cause of global warming after carbon dioxide based on its uh, warming effect not only because it absorbs sunlight and has these effects on snow and clouds but also because when you coat it with other material like in the atmosphere soot particles become coated with other gunk and when that happens you actually black carbon actually absorbs more because you get bigger particles more sunlight hits the particles and bounces around and gets absorbed by the black carbon. So that actually doubles the warming effect. So I found, well, I found in a paper in 2000, in 2001, that it, black carbon may be the second leading cause of global warming, but not only that, because it's a particle and particles cause 90% of air pollution mortality. And worldwide today, for example, seven and a half million people die every year from air pollution and 90% of those are from particles. So but can black carbon particles are part of those particles that cause death. And I've read that's like 10 to 11% of global deaths each year or is, is air pollution related. Oh, oh yeah. Total deaths worldwide. Yeah. It's because they're contextualize about, that. Yeah. Number. It's about 10 or 11% yeah. second leading cause of death worldwide after yeah. heart disease. But the particles, because they're short lived in the atmosphere, if you remove them, if you stop emitting black carbon you know, soot particles, you can have an, a rapid increase or a rapid re reduction of climate impacts of, from the black carbon and a rapid reduction of the health effects. So it's not only the fastest, so controlling black carbon may be the fastest method of actually slowing global warming. Mm -hmm. And so this was a, a finding that back in 2000, uh, in 2001, and ironically, George Bush, the first, George Bush II, who was, became president um, right after, well, I hadn't published this paper on this, but he, um, his, the White House was asking for papers from the EPA again uh, on climate because he had to decide whether the U.S. would take part in the Kyoto Protocol. 
And at the t so he asked the EPA, and it turned out I had sent to the EPA this paper on black carbon and, and just a review. And at the time, then the White House asked the EPA if they had any papers, and they said, oh, we have this paper on black carbon. Would you like it? And, it's, and so they asked me permission if uh, to, they could see the paper at the White House. So I said, yeah, that's fine, but please don't cite it or quote it because it hasn't been published yet. And so they said, fine. But sure enough, two weeks later, <laughs> uh, President Bush is giving a speech about why the U.S. is going to pull out of the Kyoto Protocol. <laughs> oh, no. Really? <laughs> and, so, and so he says, so he says, this is a quote. He says, uh, we're pulling out of the Kyoto Protocol for two reasons. One is because it's not fair because China and India don't have to do as much as we would. And, but the second reason is because it doesn't include black carbon. <laughs> 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 Which was not at all your intent, right? Yeah, and he says, not only that, he says, controlling black carbon would not only slow global warming, but improve human health. <laughs> it's, like, it's not a reason to pull out of the Kyoto Protocol, it's a reason to improve it. <laughs> but that's a fascinating lesson in politics, right? Like, so here's science, you're pre representing science, mm -hmm. and, and Bush, it, it became politicized. He used that piece of information in a political nature yeah. for, to justify whatever... Yeah, after I said, please don't cite it or quote it. <laughs> but do you think that can cut both ways? That, like, at the intersection of science and politics is is very fraught territory. And you've, and oh, yeah, you've existed in this territory. Well, what I've learned from that is, first of all, yeah, poli policymakers will want to use selective science a lot. They'll select which science they want to follow. But the other thing is, like, if I put information out, I really have to follow up and keep explaining it to people so it doesn't get misinterpreted. Mm -hmm. Because this was a classic case where you know, somebody's like misinterpreting. I mean, they, fortunately, he actually gave the correct conclusion. So it wasn't, mm -hmm. he wasn't saying he was just using it in a miscontextual way. But you really, as a scientist, you really have to follow through and explain to people your research because most people don't understand a lot of the research. Um, but this was leading to a, a different story. The, the good part about that whole thing on black carbon was, so a couple of years later, the California Resources Board had to decide whether to uh, allow diesel vehicles, which are ones that emit a lot of black carbon, set the, you know, the, soot, the smoky soot that comes out of them, whether to allow them to uh, still emit soot because they were trying to get it, like California tightened its particle emission standards from vehicles. Mm -hmm. And gasoline vehicles could meet these standards pretty easily, but diesel vehicles could not. And so diesel industry, was, the diesel vehicle industry was trying to get an exemption from California so they can keep, have, you know, have mm -hmm. higher emissions than gasoline vehicles. But the California Air Resources Board decided that based on the fact that on climate grounds, based on the study that uh, black carbon may be the second leading cause of global warming, that they would not allow diesel vehicles to get an exemption. So as mm -hmm. a result then of this paper, and you know they're also saying black diesel particles also cause health effects too, mm -hmm. so that was an additional reason, but because of this paper and the health effects of diesel, you cannot buy a diesel vehicle in California from about 2004 to 2011. Mm -hmm. And in 2011, I think after that, they started putting filters in some of those cars. So that was a, a good story from from the study. <laughs> okay, on on um, people misinterpreting um, the science, politicians, mm -hmm. but also, I, I want to get to the 
to the study in the National Academy of Sciences in, in 2017 that received it, a lot of controversy. Um, mm -hmm. 100% wind wave solar plan for, for the country um, that evolved into, into plans for all the states, for, for every country, a whole, a whole project, the solutions project that you've worked on with some, some famous actors, some famous documentary filmmakers, some, a kind of a, amazing cadre of, um, of climate change um, advocates um, uh, trying to affect public policy, trying to make a difference in this area. You came out with a paper that modeled um, how it would work, what the plan would be, how many, you know, gigawatts of solar, megawatts of solar, how many wind turbines, how much land area it would use, how much uh, hydro, like what it would actually look like, what it would cost, how it would affect air quality, how it would reduce costs of negative externalities like people um, dying, mor morbidities and mortalities, and just the whole picture. And it was criticized heavily in a, in a later publication. And, um, and, and it seemed like they misunderstood or they, they, miss, they, they didn't have quite uh, the right insight into, into your, what you were doing. Like, like for instance, it, one of the things they seemed to mi mistake was like <laughs> primary energy versus um, um, used energy and use energy. It was like one potential mishap in the whole thing. But I'm just really curious as to your take on that whole experience because it seemed to be a very difficult experience for you. But yeah. Well, some context. So we had started, I mean, I, my whole career, I've been trying to understand and solve these large scale pollution and climate problems. And until, well, until about the year 2000, I've been focusing mostly on the problems, trying to understand the problems. And in the, around the year 2000, I started looking at solutions. So starting with wind energy, I was doing wind energy analyses and looking, for example, how many wind turbines would it take to replace coal in the U.S.? I think that was the first paper we did. Then I had a PhD student starting to do wind resource analyses worldwide based on data. So you know, she published a couple of papers, including a global wind atlas. Um, but you know, fast forward to about 2007, eight, I you know started getting interested in you know solar as well and geothermal. And I did a review paper in 2008, which was to analyze what are the, you know, it, because people were proposing all sorts of solutions to climate change at the time, including carbon capture, nuclear power, bioenergy, and in addition to renewables. So I decided to do a review paper because I'd done a lot of work on looking at the impacts on the atmosphere of different uh, fuels like hydrogen, uh, ethanol, coal, natural gas. So I'd done air pollution analyses and some climate analyses of different fuels in addition to working on wind energy. So I decided to do a review paper looking at, trying to look agnostically at a bunch of different energy technologies, mostly, well, both for electricity generation and transportation, and also their impacts on the environment like air pollution, health on air pollution health, on climate, on water, um, on contamination, but also on reliability and land use and some other parameters. So, but ignoring costs, because I just want to see, well, what are the, of all these technologies, which ones are the best mm -hmm. and which ones are the best for solving these problems that we have? Which and, are, and including the air pollution component, which is largely missing in a lot of the other yeah. strategic views of, of what the 
exactly. direction forward is for the country. Yeah, so I'm trying to solve air pollution together with climate and energy security. In fact, that was the title of the paper um, uh, related to energy solutions to examining energy solutions to air pollution, global warming, and energy security. So those are the three problems we're trying to solve simultaneously. And anyway, long story short, this that paper, it concluded that, well, the best technology is probably the most obvious one, like there's wind, onshore and offshore wind, solar photovoltaics on rooftops and power plants, uh, concentrated solar power, some geothermal, even tidal and wave, it, you know, again, ignoring costs at the time. And then hydroelectric power came in, you know, it was pretty close, but it, you know, has some drawbacks, you know, land requirements and people don't like the impacts. But then, you know, below that was like nuclear, carbon capture, biofuels, those came in last. So from this paper, I concluded, well, the best technologies are what I call wind, water, solar technologies, and which includes basically- WWS. Every yeah. time I see WWS in your paper, I, in my mind, go WWF. And I think of, <laughs> <laughs> and I think of like, like sort of, well, we're a wildlife finder also the like wrestling. Like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway. Well, wind, water, solar is short for not only the electricity generating generators that are clean and renewable, mm -hmm. but storage and electrification. But- so after that, then I was asked to write a paper on, well, okay, th if these are the best technologies, can we actually power the world with these technologies? And so I then partnered with uh, Dr. Mark DeLuke, who was at UC Davis at the time and is now at Berkeley and Davis. And we wrote a paper in Scientific American, basically analyzing, is it possible to power the entire world with just wind, water, solar technologies mm -hmm. by 2030? And... We looked at there. We looked at the cost in addition to land use and materials and um, and other factors. And the conclusion was yes, it's technically and economically possible. However, for social and political reasons, it probably won't happen. But maybe you know, getting most by 2030, maybe like 80 percent, and the rest by 2050 is more likely goal. Little did I know that that paper turned out to be the scientific basis for what's called the Green New Deal, mm. which was a policy proposal. That came up in around 2018 or so for the U.S. to transition to 100% renewable energy by 2030. Yeah. But yeah, so just to emphasize that this <laughs> your paper, your plan is the backbone of the Green New Deal. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So then, yeah, the, our paper, the 2009 Scientific American paper, is the scientific basis for the Green New Deal, and that's that's where the energy portion of the Green New Deal. The Green New Deal also talked about other social issues that are not related to energy but the energy portion of the Green New Deal. And, but from there, um, after that, I did a TED Talk with um, Stuart Brand, who was, it was a debate actually. Yeah, where I, I, I rewatched it, yeah. It was, <laughs> yeah, he was for nuclear energy and I talked about, well, why these other technologies are mm -hmm. better than nuclear. The audience was 80-20 pro-nuclear, and at oh, the yeah. end it was maybe 60-40. So you, you yeah, successfully swayed about 20% of the audience to be anti-nuclear. <laughs> yeah, I was happy. I mean, it was happy to be able to switch some, some people, yeah. but it was, it was an interesting dynamic there. But, but the point of that is from those two things, that Scientific American article and that TED debate, then I was introduced uh, to some great people who I ended up then helping starting a nonprofit with um, Mark Ruffalo, Marco Kraples, Josh Fox, who, um, th well, Mark Ruffalo is an actor and activist, but Josh Fox is a filmmaker and mm -hmm. uh, Mark, Marco Kraples was a businessman at the time. And we just hit it off at a, at a dinner. And, and we're, they, the reason we met was that um, Mark Ruffalo and Josh Fox were 
working in New York against fracking, get mm -hmm. natural gas hydrofracking, which the state of New York was considering because Pennsylvania nearby had had a lot of fracking going the, on. The movie Gasland, he made the movie Gasland, yeah, very so, famous film. Yeah, Josh Fox had uh, got a nominee for uh, an Oscar for Gasland, which was really exposed uh, gas hydrofracking, pretty much brought it into the forefront. And so they wanted to, they were looking for, you know, what's an alternative to fracking in New York? And so I developed this, me and Mark DeLucchi had developed this plan for the world, basically. And they wanted to know, well, can we do something similar for New York? And I thought about it and I said, well, I know this can be a lot of work. And so I told them at this meeting, it was in, this was in 2011, in June of 2011. I told him, well, have it all write one paragraph and then you can get somebody else to write the rest. I knew it would take a long time. And uh, it turned out, um, I, so they said, okay, well, that's all you can do. So I started writing this paragraph one night and I got inspired and I just thought, well, you know, if, if I want to really solve this problem, I have to be able to do it at the state level too. And so I stayed up all night and I started putting, basically compressing this world plan into a New York state plan and kind of found some additional data. Anyway, the next morning I, I sent them a, like, it was like a 14 page draft of a New York energy plan. Just the next morning. After. Yeah, the next morning. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> Were they like, what, who is this guy? Like, what? Said, yeah, well basically one guy commented, because there was a larger group at this time. It was, it was about you know, 10 people. One guy commented, well, uh, you know, a few more days like this will solve the world's problem. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's pretty productive. Yeah. But, well, it turned out it needed 35 more uh, edition, 35 more edits or, or mm -hmm. uh, versions before it finally got published in 2013. But that was the start. I mean, people became inspired because, well, we had a New York energy plan and then all the, everybody was like really just we're staying up late and talking a lot. And we were really excited about like bringing this to the state of New York and to the mm -hmm. governor which we ended up doing. And the state of New York eventually not only passed a 50% renewables law in 2015, but went to 100% renewables in the electric power sector. Mm -hmm. I think it was like 2018 or so. Mm -hmm. And uh, and that still stands. And and so we, we developed this New York, New York plan. Then we did one for California, mm -hmm. brought that to the governor. Governor of California adopted a 50% renewables law within three within two months after we met. Yeah, so to great, to great effect, to great impact. Yeah, it started having an impact. And this, so this is, well, so you can see, first of all, that, so these two states mm -hmm. suddenly were starting to, were adopting this plan and, and our, mm -hmm. well, it was not because of me, it was because, I mean, we were developing the plants, but it was because we had this group that combined science, business, culture, and community. Messaging. And, and yeah. it was to be able to get the information out to large numbers of people and to a lot mm -hmm. of the right people, you needed this coalition mm -hmm. of people, a diverse coalition of people across. And it was unapologetically on the left of the political aisle. Um, no, not well. It was, I mean, I think most of the people were on the left. However, it appealed to the far right as well because there were a lot of, because I mean, first of all, I was not thinking of it as left, left versus right. I was thinking this is beneficial to sure. everybody because it creates jobs, saves consumers money, reduces health problems, reduces climate problems. This is beneficial to everybody. And a lot of people on the far right were very interested in because there are a lot of people who want to own their own power. Hmm. There was, in fact, this group called the Green Tea Party. Mm -hmm. So it's part of the Tea Party, which is very extreme, right? And but some of them really like this because they, they could, you know, solar on their own roof. They can hmm. 
they can own their own power. They don't have to worry about the government controlling their power. Mm-hmm. So there are a lot of people. And then plus, you know, wind and solar, uh, even today, I mean, nine of the 10 states with the most wind is a fraction of their electricity production are all red states. states. Yeah. Because it's so cheap. Same with solar. You know, and they're the fastest growing. Texas is now eclipsed California for solar installations. And Yeah. So it did start, I mean, the, you know, Certainly, activists and you know actors and are generally on the left, but it was perceived that way. I mean, the Green yeah, New Deal, that. the whole the whole thing felt like a, a left political well block. Yeah, before the well before the Green New Deal was announced. So what happened though was so we got these two states, and then we developed plans for all fifty states, and then because we just automatized it, I, I just automatized it and got you know developed these plans and got all fifty states published, and all of a sudden now. It was the election, the presidential election. And because not only our solutions project, which we started in 2011, it didn't become a formal nonprofit until 2013, but they engaged all these other nonprofits. So we had mm. like 100 nonprofits mm. supporting 100% renewable energy. I went to Paris. The Eiffel Tower was lit up with 100% renewable energy. It was like the, literally. It's the power it was, of a big idea. Yeah, it was because this thing had just spread like wildfire to all the nonprofits in the world. Do you I, <laughs> I, do you think other um, scientists, academics, people with um, with the tools of, of a place like here, Stanford, at their disposal, should should dream bigger, should think bigger, should should aspire to exactly what you're describing, a big um, affirmative, you know, goal, statement, purpose, and at, as a sort of would the world be a better place if more people took, you know, I, direct action like that? I think on topics that such as this, on climate and pollution, on large scale topics, where the threat is real and yeah, the threat is real, and, and you can actually, and there is a, it's a difficult problem to solve. But that, does that then open up critique of science, or does is that the risk of that trade? Well, I think you you do have to tread carefully because I don't. I think of myself as I'm educating the public, and that's my job. So I don't think of myself, I'm not an activist. You know, some people call me an activist, but that's not what I am. I mean, I'm, I'm developing plans. My purpose is to solve problems. Like like, like our plans, you know, when I did that paper in 20, 2008 on examining different solutions, you know, nuclear power was not included. Now, people say, oh, I just, you know, since then, you know, like I say we should go for wind, water, and solar and not nuclear. And people say, well, you just don't like nuclear. No, it's because scientifically I showed it's not very good. And so that's the difference is I actually have shown that that's not good through scientific. Yeah, through people scientific are pretty method. upset by the, by the they, anti-nuclear. Yeah, and they don't, people who think, they don't want to call you an activist to criticize. And so this, that kind of gets to where the, the critics of 2017 come in. But before, I, one more thing before I talk about that. So our, we did this 50 state plans and then the 2016 election came up. And uh, and I got a, and this got out to all these all the presidential candidates. I mean, so Hillary Clinton she adopted 100% renewables as her platform. Martin O'Malley adopted 100% renewables as his platform. Bernie Sanders adopted 100% renewables on his platform. He put on his website our map, our plans from our 100% renewable energy plans was right on his website. He called me. He asked me like. I'm going to, if he was thinking this was after he lost the. Did um, he just call you out of the blue? <laughs> yeah. Did, it, did, did you pick up your phone? I saw and just Burlington said, Vermont on my phone. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> yeah, I remember that. I remember looking at my phone and said, You're Burlington like, who Vermont. is this? <laughs> well, I think he, I got a warning from his, one of his staff members that he was, he was going to call me. So it wasn't to- completely, but I didn't know when he was going to call. But we talked for about 45 minutes and mm-hmm. he, 
this is after he lost the primary, but he thought Hillary Clinton would win the election. Mm-hmm. And he thought he was going to then be the head of the Senate. So he wanted to propose legislation for the U.S. to go to 100% renewables in, in the Senate. So he was asking, do I believe this will work? Mm-hmm. You know, basically, I said, yeah, I believe it'll work. And I think, you know, it's technically and economically possible. You know, there's mm-hmm. just social and political barriers. And I asked him, the funny part was I asked him, well, do you want me to give you suggestions about, you know, what the law, what law should be like, what you should include to, you know, to get this? And he goes, no, 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 that's my job. It's <laughs> <laughs> like hard now. Yeah, yeah, it was hard now. He said, I mean, he's like, you know, he wanted to know it to work, but you know, yeah. policymakers want to put their stamp on the actual totally. legislation. Yeah. And that was fine with me. I just put it offered. Um, but he did say, he said he wanted to do other things. So not only introduce 100% renewable legislation, mm-hmm. but he said, let's you know write something together. Mm-hmm. And even though Hillary Clinton lost the election and he wasn't head of the Senate, he did introduce 100% renewable legislation to the Senate. In fact, there were eight laws and policies, including the Green New Deal, which are the last two, mm-hmm. that were 100% renewable laws and policies mm-hmm. uh, proposed in the Senate and the House. Mm-hmm. But And then we did actually write an op-ed together on... You know, the next year after his pr- proposed 100% renewables law um, was introduced. But okay, so that with all that in mind, so we were getting a lot of traction with these 100% renewable plans, mm-hmm. and so we had a big target on our back because there are a lot of people who don't like just renewables. They like nuclear power. They like carbon capture, coal, natural gas, oil with or without carbon capture, they're bioenergy people. We were very strict about what we were including because we want to solve these problems effectively and quickly and with the most health benefit, most climate benefit, most energy security benefit. And we didn't have, we did not want to include these other technologies. You know all of the above. Yeah, so it's not like, explicitly yeah. not all of the above. Yeah, so the Obama administration had an all of the above policy, which was let's try everything, hope something works. And, you know, that was basically, you know, Republican and Democratic administrations have had similar things with different degrees of, you know, favoring different technologies. But we were like strictly, let's just use clean renewable energy, no combustion, focus on yeah, health. Don't burn things. Burn, burning things is largely the problem. Yeah, air air pollution. And it's that's the thing. Let's yeah, stop burning doing things that. is the main problem because you're releasing greenhouse gases and air pollutants and you can't filters just don't work that effectively. So. There are a lot of people who didn't like this, you know, who and who weren't. Nobody was listening to them because there were, there were scientists who, um, and not only scientists but uh, you know advocates and uh, policy people too, who you know they had their own plans. But you know we were, we had so much momentum and so many people had had, uh, had agreed with you know this. Let's do this that they weren't being listened to. So they thought, well, okay, they're going to, a couple of them banded together mm-hmm. and they got other disgruntled people together. Mm-hmm. And they thought, let's write a paper to just ruin their credibility. Mm. And that's what they did. They did a, they, in 2017, this group of 21 people uh, wrote a paper with the sole purpose of trying to destroy our credibility, to assassinate our characters in terms of scientific character, you know, scientific credibility. Yeah, their and, claims were like, you know, poor poor assumptions, poor modeling, poor I mean it was it was like a it was a scathing. Yeah. Yeah, and you know, a lot of and to be fair, like 
you know, some of their criticisms are, re- you know, reasonable. They're not like, you know, there's a lot of uncertainty in there. Can you steel man their argument? Like what elements of their arguments were, were helpful and constructive? Were there any? Yeah. So, I, well, just to put everything in context. So they wrote this, well, they wrote a, usually when you, because we had published a paper in the proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, which was on top, so on top of getting all this information out and doing a 50 state plan. After we did the 50 state plans, we then did another study which was called, we call a grid integration study, looking at, well, if you actually simulated in time, and we did it at a 30-second time resolution, a system with 100% renewables in the United States, can you keep the grid stable mm-hmm. at low cost? And so we did a paper on that and found that we could. And I used my the model I developed, the weather prediction climate model, to predict the winds and solar radiation fields throughout the United States every 30 seconds for five years Mm -hmm. to develop fields of wind and solar that we can then, you know, combining with everything else, storage and, and, uh, and hydro and, uh, you know, and other technologies, can we keep the grid stable? And I found, yes, we could. And, and it was a very detailed study and it was published in this really prestigious journal. And then we got an award from the journal for being one of the top five out of 16,000 papers submitted (laughs) that year. Hmm. It was like, yeah, it was a very prestigious prize. They're like, here's an award, now here's a complete takedown. Yeah, so so on top of getting, yeah, after getting the award, then these other, <laughs> these other, this group was steaming because they didn't like the fact that everybody was listening. We were, ha- we had all these people listening to us and uh, actually trying to address, you know, address the problems with the solution, ignoring what they were proposing was let's use nuclear power, let's use carbon capture, let's use bioenergy, or let's just do all of the above. And so they were steaming and try and really want to knock us down. But usually when you submit a paper and somebody has a critique, they usually submit it as a letter, which called it called a letter, which is not a full paper. Um, it's a letter. And then you get a chance to respond to that letter. But that's when the this, etiquette. That's the convention. Yeah, that, well, yeah, that's how that's the standard way to do yeah. it. You don't people don't write papers because paper requires new science. And when you're crit- criticizing somebody else, there's no new science there. All you're doing is criticizing, mm. and which is fine. And you criticize, but it's not—it's not a paper. It's a letter. It's—I mean, mm. just by definition, by the journal standards, mm. it's not a paper because that requires new research. And so they—they they wrote it as a uh, as a paper and submitted it. Didn't tell us even. Though, okay, so then two of the people at, on the paper of the twenty-one were from Stanford, where I work. Mm-hmm. And, well, sorry, three of them were for Stanford. Two of those three were on the PhD dissertation committee of one of the students on one of our papers. Hmm. None of them told us they were writing this paper. None of them told their students hmm. we were writing the, they were writing this paper, even though three of them worked right nearby. So they were keep, keeping it secret, didn't tell us anything. Oh, wow, so it was full, yeah. Yeah, they, and they and didn't tell the students that they were mentoring that the ones who were the advisors didn't tell the students mm-hmm. that they meant the student. Yes. Well, one student who they mentored mm-hmm. anything about it, kept it secret. And then, uh, and then got it ushered through the proceedings of the national Academy of sciences, PNAS. So there's, there's bad blood here. I mean, it feels mm-hmm. the whole thing just there's, you're kind of getting little glimmers of activities and things that. No, I got no. I had no clue. Well, after be, the fact. Yeah, after the fact. <laughs> after the fact, you start piecing together some. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, I, 
after the fact there was a, yeah, a lot of stuff came out, but, um, Anyway, they ended up publishing it as a paper, and then they issued two press releases to try to disseminate. And it was, mm-hmm. yeah, it was not only it was, there were some you know reasonable comments, but the ones that I got really upset were were the critiques of the modeling. They just out of the blue, they would say, "Oh, we had modeling errors." Now, just to give you an idea, it wasn't our we we had no modeling errors whatsoever in this paper. You can argue about the assumptions of the models, and that's not what they were talking about. They were talking about we had modeling errors, that we had made mistakes in our model, that bugs, there were bugs in our model that caused mm-hmm. figures to be erroneous. Mm-hmm. And just to give you an idea if that it was not our errors, it was their own errors in simple errors, really, I don't know, for lack of a better word, dumb errors. Mm-hmm. Like, for example, we had a table that had values that were average values. Mm-hmm. And... It's obvious they are average values from everything in the paper, and the source of the data is clearly referenced to another paper which says they're average values. Mm-hmm. They claimed that these were maximum values, mm-hmm. that they weren't average values, they were maximum values, mm. and then as a result, all our figures were wrong because they don't, the figures don't make sense if they're maximum values. Yeah. And then they published this as a modeling error when it was their own error for trying to claim these were maximum values instead of what they were, average values. And so they claimed that was a modeling error, was their own error. And so I had four experts write statements saying these are average values. Because this became a legal thing. Yeah, Yeah, they refused to correct these clear errors, their own stupid errors. I mean, this is just so mindless. I mean, you can't hear, here's 21 people claiming to be expert scientists and they can't even understand the definition of values in a table. And you felt this wasn't just an attack on on you and the team involved in the paper, but on the broader project and on the broader imperative to well, more quickly advance. Oh no, that's this is what their purpose is. That's why they issued two press releases. They wanted they wanted to get headlines, and they did get headlines saying saying you know, horrible things that st- uh, you know, Stanford professors work is contains modeling errors like nothing this whole idea of 100 percent renewables is based on a lie yeah it's like a headline yeah it's based on uh uh erroneous information it's just based on poor science like that kind of stuff and that's what they got and so that's why it was just they would refuse to correct anything they refuse to back off to this day they still haven't corrected anything even though experts have shown that they're what they've claimed is nonsense and it and it is. It's really. I mean, it's. But you you sued, right? I mean, you. Yeah. You, no, took, so it, I, you I, took it to court. Well, I first I first tried to get them to correct it. I first tried to get the journal to correct it. I get I tried to get my university to get them to correct it. Nobody wanted to do anything. They just said, "Oh, you know," because we did we did respond in the journal as a letter to mm-hmm. their paper, mm-hmm. and so we and they said, "Well, you've been able to respond to them. That should be enough." That's basically. You know, they said what they wanted. You said what you wanted, but they had all these headlines that influenced how people perceived our work and and behaved in, and that, that caused that had a lot of consequences to the students. One of the students who left academia altogether, mm. devastated. You know, and it's embarrassing to you know the students, and it was it was really a humiliating experience when somebody you know could just try to to try to you know, ruin your credibility with complete trash. I mean, it's it was junk science being published in a legitimate journal. And it wasn't even science, it was just, you know, it was like 
it was just a smear. It was a smear piece. And on top of that, one of the editors, you know, when I submitted to the journal PNAS, I'd submitted them a list of things I'd asked them to correct before, um, before even before they published their paper. And so they said, okay, we'll send these off to the authors to have them consider correcting them. And it turns out they never sent those for two months. I f so for two months, I thought they had sent these these uh, requested corrections, and the journal never sent them. Mm. And so two months later, they sent me a revised version of the of their paper that they were going to publish. And I said, well, there's no changes here. Mm. And then the, the person I was communicating with says, well, we sent it to the editor who was going to send it to them, but it turns out he never sent them. He never sent the corrections, which leads me to think, okay, well, this is clearly he was doing this intentionally. He had like it might have been the editor who was trying to push this through to help you know ruin our credibility. I mean, I don't have evidence what, of that, but it was like that's what it's felt like. What do you feel? Do you because you know without all the context, you know somebody sees you know Stanford professor sues National Academy of Sciences, and it's like, whoa, you know what? what that's not the scientific method. You know, it's kind of the, the quick, the quick vector of attack against that is like, where isn't critique allowed within science, and why was, like that there's concern around the integrity of the scientific enterprise was the, was was part of the reaction to that. Did you feel that? Did you? How did you? grapple with that. Yeah, well that was part of the smear campaign because the in the misinformation campaign the, because there are, they are in fact they use this in the court. They I mean they basically tried to say that oh this is um, a scientific disagreement. But that's not what the experts say. The experts call these false facts. I mean there's a different a scientific disagreement is when you when there are like what's the impact of climate change on the earth 20 years from now. Some people say this, some people say that. That's a scientific disagreement. Whether the value in a table is an average or a maximum value, that's a question of fact. That is not a question of science. That is a question of fact. So they're confusing scientific disagreements with questions of fact. And when a fact is false, and it's either intentionally false or false with reckless disregard for the truth, that's called defamation. Yeah. And that's what I sued for defamation for three specific, mm. three or four specific false facts. And they've been trying to claim, oh, this is just a scientific disagreement. Well, that's because they're using the false definition of a scientific disagreement. If mm -hmm. they think that you know whether a table has average or maximum values is a scientific disagreement, that's because they do not understand what a scientific disagreement is. Yeah, and that's the problem. Is and everybody who wanted to support them, which are people who were against clean renewable energy only, those people would continue this false this false idea that this is a scientific disagreement. It's nothing to do with scientific disagreement. The, the things that I disagreed with that are scientific, I put in the reply to them. And so those are very- clear. Well, it's so fraught. I mean, the stakes are high because it's not, yeah. the stakes aren't the paper or the stakes aren't yeah. even the lawsuit. The stakes are um, ideas for the, for the future. Right. And, and, and they're not just ideas, they're real because there's, with, with you as an example, a long history of um, affecting great impact on policy, on trajectory of the energy system. And right. so, mm -hmm. so there, there are real stakes and then, and then there's humans sort of caught in the, in the middle of what's basically a battle for the future. Yeah, well, this is, 
I mean, this was a, it was clearly a mechanism that they wanted to try to get their information out. This was a way for, you know, people who weren't getting here heard to have people, oh, listen to me, listen to me. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was obvious. In fact, the lead author, I mean, he would, he did this and he'd say like, because we were, we had like, uh, our paper would get published and then, you know, we'd have some you know, famous actor or actress tweeted out, for example. Right. And then the lead author of this paper would say, oh, so-and-so, why don't you tweet my paper too? I mean, he literally said this. <laughs> this is what, this was a, you know, people with, who weren't getting attention mm-hmm. and they wanted to bring down, you know, the people who were getting attention. Yeah. And that's, that's basically what it was. It's unfortunate. Yeah. It's, it's kind of pathetic because, you know, the, it could be more constructive, but um, anyway, it is what it is. What do you think about the idea that um, with regards to, you know, what's getting deployed where in, in the here and the now, you know, whether, mm-hmm. whether a nuclear project is going to be moving forward with investors and um, permits and all that, or, or a series of solar and wind farms that the, that the market is going to decide that. And, and the market is in a pretty good place with respect to that decision. Like it is, firmly choosing wind and solar and um, and natural gas to some degree, but mostly wind and solar in terms of new cumulative capacity installations in the US and Europe, in China. It's it, There's more investment in solar last year, I believe, for the first time than total investment in fossil fuels, period, globally, yeah. um, that the market has decided and that the market is moving in the direction of your paper, of your viewpoint that essentially validating what you've been saying the market is moving that direction yeah that's a good news because you know my goal all along has been to try to solve these problems and it's just so lucky that that the solution is actually implementing itself now i have to say though it's slower than it needs to be but it is going in the right direction and yeah wind solar batteries electric vehicles heat pumps electric induction cooktops, you know, these are moving off the shelves and and going and being deployed on a massive scale. I mean, at the end of this year, China, as you mentioned, well, they'll have 500 gigawatts of solar installed. And that's more than the rest of the world combined, I believe. And within three more years, they'll have a terawatt installed. So another 500 gigawatts. I mean, they're moving at a massive pace. Um, but yeah, every country is going rapidly in the electric power sector. I mean, but we do need their, the main sectors are electricity, transportation, buildings, and industry. And we do need transportation to move faster. There are probably maybe somewhere between 25, 30 million electric vehicles in the world, but there are 1.4 billion vehicles overall that we need to transition. You know, buildings, we need to get rid of gas and oil and wood and buildings and electrify those. It's just straightforward in concept. We can Certainly, all new buildings can be re- renewable, and same with new vehicles. But we have to retrofit existing vehicles. In industry, we need to electrify that as well. Probably the hardest, uh, but we have the exist. We have the technologies: arc furnaces, induction furnaces, resistance furnaces. These are all electric technologies for high temperatures. So it's really a combination of the market, but we need policy, strong policies to be put in place to speed it up even faster. Yeah. What is your view on? roughly dimensionally how fast it is moving and how fast it needs to move it's like what is the it's timeline accelerating. and how yeah well we well we need 80 percent transition by 2030 so it's not close to that rate 
But that number, where does that number come in your mind? I mean, I know that there's IPCC reports and things of that nature, but but what is the hard and the fast of that? Like, what happens if we don't get to 80% reduction by 2030? Well, well, so in terms of air pollution, we need 100% by today because every year, seven and a half million people die. And so if we eliminate all air pollution today, uh, those deaths go to basically you know, 90% reduction of that. So 10%, only 10% of that, because there's still natural air pollution that causes mortality. So that we can eliminate air pollution right away. And that's, so that's on one end, that's tugging. We need a rapid solution there. From a climate point of view, if 2030, we need 80%, not only in electric and energy, but also all emissions, because to avoid 1.5 degrees Celsius global warming, we're at about 1.1 to 1.2 right now since the 1850 to 1900 period and with because we're not doing any carbon capture which is not helpful at all because i mean in my opinion carbon capture just increases co2 because it's an opportunity cost every energy even a renewable energy powering it could reduce more co2 by just replacing a fossil plant but so we need to we need a rapid emission reduction 80% by 2030 and 100% by 2035 to 2050 to avoid 1.5 warming so those are the goalposts yeah i mean 2030 is seven years from now or even a little bit less it's pretty close so i mean it doesn't even necessarily seem possible to to manufacture that much solar and wind and put it in the ground over seven years to get to 80 percent global reduction i mean it just seems like it seems like there's tremendous growth and there's there's um there's logarithm, there's exponential growth, geometric growth, whatever word you want to use around all of these things. There's declining cost curves. There's a, there's a lot to be hopeful around um, with respect to the rise of renewables and electric vehicles and energy efficiency and just all, all manner of things, but it's not fast enough. Yeah. Well, we spend 11 or $12 trillion a year on all energy that's across all energy sectors. And to transition, we need about $62 trillion worldwide. And so and there's a know, little over a trillion a year, according to Bloomberg, in in all of these renewable, um, clean, green technologies, right including electric vehicles. Yeah, but if you look at what everybody pays, so it's not only investment, but what people pay for all the energy, it's on the order of eleven or twelve trillion. So mm. if we if that was moved, first of all, to getting not investing in any more fossil fuels or nuclear or, or bioenergy or anything else, or fossil vehicles or you know we're talking about all energy. Uh, you know, we, we could get, we, I mean, we, we could actually generate the capital we need to do this, to actually transition. Mm-hmm. Um, but the savings are so enormous. I mean, think about it because in 2050, the cost will be about eight, 17 to $18 trillion per year. But if we electrify all energy, our energy requirements go down about 56% because of the efficiency of heat pumps, efficiency of electric vehicles, efficiency of electric industry, eliminating all the energy needed to mine, transport, and refine fossil fuels and uranium. It's about 11% to 12% of all energy. And end-use energy efficiency, we can get down 56% of energy requirements, plus the cost per unit energy is about 15% lower uh, for clean renewables than like wind and solar compared to fossils. So, and that that big reduction is because, like driving a car. The the total energy of the fuel only a small fraction of that gets used in the engine to actually move the car for 
car exactly. forward twenty percent or something like yeah, that. Yeah, only about twenty percent of the energy in gasoline. But goes with to electric, the car. there's an extremely high efficiency of use of the primary energy. Yeah, the the electricity going into your car about you know in the order of eighty percent goes towards moving your car, and the rest is waste heat. Yeah, so there's there's a there's a factor multiple of efficiency gain throughout the system if everything electrifies, even including transmission losses. Yeah, yeah, there's a there's a huge uh, reduction of energy demand and going to electric vehicles. Same thing with heat pumps. Heat pumps use one fourth the energy as natural gas heaters. Um, so because they just move heat rather than create heat. Yeah. So that's, those are the two main things. And then there's some in industry, there's some, some electrification improvements and then yeah, getting rid of mining. That's about 11% of to 12% of all energy worldwide. It's for mining. And, yeah. and so, so if, we calculate 56% reduction of demand just by going to electricity and wind, water, solar produ- providing the electricity. And then you, so that means that if the, co- even if the cost per unit energy is the same, you're using 56% less energy. So your annual costs are 56% lower. Mm-hmm. But in fact, the cost per unit energy is going to be less. It already is less with the wind, water, solar. Yeah. We calculate about 15% less. So that's about a 63%. Almost no marginal cost to run. So it, yeah, there's no fuel cost at all. It's deflationary. It's why it's the primary principal component of the Inflation Reduction Act is because these things are fundamentally deflationary. Right. Um, but so if, if we spend 17 and a half to 18 trillion dollars per year on energy in 2050, and you've got to wind, water, solar, we're ending up spending seven trillion dollars per year. So that's about 11 trillion dollars per year savings. So if our capital cost is 62 trillion, and we're saving 11 trillion a year, that's a payback time of five to six years, mm-hmm. just in the energy. Health cost savings are another 30 trillion a year. Climate costs another 30 trillion a year. So the social cost saving, the social cost payback time is less, less than one year. Mm-hmm. So if we transition our energy system to 100% wind, water, solar across all energy sectors, when you account for health and climate cost benefits in, in addition to energy cost benefits, the payback time is one year, which is, this is like, yeah, so, you know, if we galvanize society to actually do this, there is little downside to doing as fast as possible. Yeah, the air will be cleaner. Um, the effects, the ravages of climate change will be substantially mitigated. The risk for future generations, it's mm-hmm. it, it's economic. I mean, in almost every instance where wind and solar goes on the ground today, it's the lowest cost option, even without subsidies, um, even though subsidies are important. And subsidies are used in every form of energy is maybe another thing to just touch on for a second because people like to rail against the subsidies that renewables need or the subsidies that electric vehicles need. But it's it's the case that every single form of energy has been subsidized throughout the, our global yeah. system from creation until still. Yeah, that's true. All, I mean, all subs- all energy has been subsidized. Um, it's it's and- foundational to... To, to national progress it's food systems are subsidized as well because it's foundational so it's right. well this is this has been fascinating i really appreciate your time here and and jumping into your story I've, i find it fascinating i find it inspiring you've been a hero to to me and to many in terms oh, of thanks. the impact that you've had um your research you've you, you've truly made a big impact in the world of climate and clean energy and I've been observing it from afar since graduating from here, but it's just nice to reconnect. It's nice to, yeah. to chat about some of this with you in person. I know some of it's probably pretty difficult too. I mean, the, the stuff we were, we were talking about with the National Academy of Sciences were probably very personally taxing for you, which I, can only, I can't even really imagine. Yeah, but, 
I appreciate oh, you opening up about all of that. And um, I guess I'll just, I'll leave it with, with just one more question, which is, um, are you hopeful for the future? Yeah. No, I've always been hopeful and still am hopeful because I know we can solve this, these problems. I know we have the ability to solve the problems technically and economically and socially to a degree. I mean, there are barriers, of course, but it, we will eventually transition. It's just, it's really, in my mind, just a question of how fast. So it, the a system, I mean, if I look a hundred years from now, a system, you know, we won't be burning fossil fuels in a hundred years. So that's, I mean, that's too late to transition in a hundred years, but so there's some time between then and, and now that we will transition. And my job is to try, try to look at the science to show, okay, what are the benefits and costs of doing such a transition more rapidly, and then trying to educate the public and policymakers about those choices. And, but I, you know, what I've worked on so far and looked at so far, I know it's possible. So, uh, and I know it'll be beneficial and it'll be, it'll actually solve the problem that I set it out to solve when I was a young kid. So that would, that would make me gratified if that ever happens. But, uh, you know, it's really, I'm really would be gratified for humanity because, you know, all the lives saved and the devastation, and the devastation that we've avoided by such a solution. Yeah. So, Time is of the essence. Yeah. It, yeah. Every year that goes by, um, yeah, we just, we lose more time and people. Yeah. Well, so, thank you for, Thank you for all the work that you do, Mark. Keep up the good fight. <laughs> well, thank you, Ted, for your interest and for you. Thank you for joining our program and and uh, yeah, having the passion to to go through it. That was a big that was a big deal for me personally to get into this program those years ago. I was mm. wow, I'm I'm going to this illustrious place and it's it's a pretty special program. So oh, yeah, thank you for being part of it. Yeah, well, we'll leave it there. Thanks, thanks so much, Mark. Okay, thank you, Tim.